Good morning, everyone. So, we are going to be continuing today on this bright and beautiful morning with our study of the life and ministry of Elijah. So, last week we were in 1 Kings 21, and that's still where we are today. And, yeah, for those who are new here, we've been going through the life and the ministry of Elijah from, um, starting from 1 Kings 17, and um, it's just about five chapters, so encourage everyone to be reading this, to be praying about it. There's a lot in there, and every time I go through it, I get blessed. Today, we are going to be looking at the second part of 1 Kings 21, and um, I was going to summarize the story um, for you, but I thought it might be better to let the scripture speak for itself, so we're going to read the whole chapter today. Um, it's a bit of a lot of scripture, but let's go through it, and uh, I think we're blessed in reading scripture. So we'll start in verse 1, just to catch us up. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in letters she had written to them. They proclaimed the fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went, to take, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, 
This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. I have found you. Uh, Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There never was anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. But I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we talked about the anatomy of sin and how we usually end up, you know, despite our best intentions sometimes in sin. And we saw in the book of James that uh, sin usually begins in our desires. We have a desire for something. It conceives and grows, conceives sin, which grows. And when the sin is mature, it brings forth death. Now, in the second part of this story, um, which in the first part we covered last week, where, you know, Ahab went through this process of, just desiring a vegetable garden, and it ends up with the death of Naboth the Israelite and a curse for his family. And in the second part, God sends the prophet Elijah to confront Ahab. And we see Ahab, when he sees him, he greets him with the same greeting which he did um, in chapter 17 and 18, say, you have found me, my enemy. He always considered the man of God an enemy of his. Meanwhile, it was Ahab himself who had put himself in opposition to God. And we see in Ahab's life an interesting parallel. This same kind of story or this same anatomy of sin we see also in another king of Israel long before Ahab's time and that is King David. And we are going to use the story of King David and Bathsheba to learn something about the character of God and how he confronts both of these kings um, when they fall into sin. Just, as the way he con uh, just in the same way he confronts Ahab um, with Elijah. David was a king who feared the Lord. David was a king, a man after God's own heart. And he lived many years before um, Ahab came on the scene. In this time of David, the kingdom was still united. So in Ahab's time, there was the northern and the southern kingdom. But David still ruled over a unified Israel. And the story of David and Bathsheba is told in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I will encourage you to read it at home. But today we are going to read a few verses from it just to get a general picture. Now, the story starts off saying, 
One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And this is the same thing we see in Ahab. Desire was conceived at this point. He saw a woman, and she was very beautiful. David had a choice at this point to go back into the palace and, you know, forget about it. But he did not. So David, maybe at this point, like, okay, I'm just curious, you know. It's like, I just want to know who she is. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The desire gave birth to sin. That sin grew. And that was, you know, it was adultery. And then Bathsheba gets pregnant. So this is the sin continuing to grow and multiply and compound. Which is what sin usually does in our lives. So David sent for her husband. Who was Uriah who was at war fighting for his king and his country. And he brings him home and tries to send him to his home to, so that he can sleep with his wife and cover up the fact that she's pregnant by the king. Because also, I mean, in, in the Israel, under the laws of Moses, a woman who had been caught in adultery, like we also see in the New Testament, would likely to be stoned. And David probably didn't want this to happen. So in order to cover his guilt and his sin, he tried to get Naboth to go home. But Naboth, um, sorry, Uriah. But Uriah, Uriah, like Naboth, was a man who acted honorably. And he said, no, I'm not going to go home. My brothers are fighting uh, the enemy. And I'm not going to go home and be with my wife. So he refuses. David tries twice and even gets him drunk. But he wouldn't go home. And so David resorts to murder. In the same way that we see in the story of Ahab. In, verse, in 2 Samuel 11, verse 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So this happened as David wanted. Uriah carried his own instruction, the instructions for his own death in his hand and gave the commander who did as the king commanded. And in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Sin, desire was conceived, gave birth to sin. Sin matured and brought forth death, both a physical and a spiritual death. David took Bathsheba to be his wife, and the baby was born. And after some time, God sent Nathan to confront David in his sin. David repented, but Uriah was still dead. And David and Bathsheba's baby still died as a consequence of this. Both stories, that of King Ahab and King David, contain many parallels. There is a king involved. There is a God-fearing man with something that the king covets. There is a plot. There is murder. And there is a prophet bringing the word of the Lord. One thing I love about the Old Testament is that in reading these stories, we see the consistency of the character and nature of God. A lot of times, sometimes <clears throat> we hear the statement that, oh, God in the Old Testament seems to be harsh. But I found this not to be the case. Um, 
and we see that the same character and nature that Jesus Christ displayed by living among us to show us the nature of God is the same thing that we see when we read the Old Testament carefully. And so we're going to use these two stories. We're going to contrast both of them to learn something about the nature of God. We've learned something in the first part about the nature of humans, about how we get into sin. And today we're going to learn a bit about God's nature. And the first thing I see when I look, about, look into these two stories is that God is a righteous judge. Um, we come uh, as a church, IBCD, from many cultural backgrounds, many church backgrounds. And depending on your background, maybe the attributes of God's love and his mercy and forgiveness are stressed, are emphasized. Sometimes, and wrongly, to the exclusion of God's judgment, God's holiness. And as we're singing the worship songs this morning, um, yeah, I was just um, yeah, thinking how you know, God arranges these things. And he was talking about holy, holy is the Lord. God's holiness is not to be trifled with. He's a holy God who will not abide sin. And whenever there's unconfessing in our lives, God will confront it. The Bible tells us in Romans 2, verse 6 to 11, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Ahab was an evil king. The Bible tells us there was no one who did evil in the sight of God like Ahab had done in the line of kings of the north. And on the other hand, David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible tells us God raised him from being a shepherd. God loved him. When he played the music for Saul, the spirit of the Lord came down and gave him calm. Nevertheless, God will show no favoritism. When David sinned, God sent the prophet to confront him. God is no respecter of persons. David got no special treatment because he was David. And neither king got any special treatment because they were kings. We read of God's judgment in 2 Samuel 12. Verse 10, it says, Now therefore, and this is the prophet Nathan speaking to David. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. God brought down the judgment hard on David because David was a, was a man after God's own heart. But God will not show favoritism. And God is more concerned with our sanctification. And this judgment on David, we see it fulfilled when David's son rebels against David and puts a roof, a tent on the roof and sleeps with all of David's wives in the view of all of Israel. It's is a very despicable thing. But that was the judgment that God had pronounced. 
And for Ahab, we see also God telling them, he says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. And we see this also come to pass as you read, you know, in the book of Second Kings, in the opening chapters. Ahab gets killed in war. Someone else takes over as king. All of Ahab's male descendants are killed. His wife is thrown from the palace, and the dogs eat her, eat her body. And they found nothing except the bones. All sin separates us from God. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But sometimes the consequences of sin, you know, some have heavier consequences than others. And the Bible makes us understand that as well. Sometimes we have the consequences of humiliation. Sometimes the consequences of violated conscience. We lose peace before God. We lose peace with ourselves. And we carry a burden and we lose that blessing of a free conscience before God and men. When we carry around unconfessed sin, God will bring judgment in our lives. But this judgment, this discipline that God brings is done out of love, not out of vindictiveness. Because the Bible also tells us, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And it's used as a son here because only the sons received the inheritance back in the day. But the Bible also tells us that we are all being accepted as sons before God. We are all, male and female, equal inheritors of God's grace. And so God will discipline us because God wants us to turn to him. Because God knows what lies on the other side of our sin. And that is death. That is separation from him. So that's one thing we learn about God when we read these two stories. The next thing I see in the stories is God's mercy. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. The promise that is being referred to here is the promise that God is going to bring justice. The one we read in Romans 2 just before, that God is going to bring judgment on those who do evil. And so Peter is encouraging them because the Christians were being persecuted all over the world. When you read the book of Peter, that's the context. And you know the, the Christians were wondering, why is God letting this evil go on? You know, someone asked me last week as well, why did God let Naboth suffer? Why did he let him die? He did actually what was right. And the same thing can be said of Uriah. He tried to act honorably and he died for it. But the Bible tells us that God is not slow. He's going to bring judgment. But the mercy of God is so great that even for those like Ahab, he still gives them a long leash and tries to call them to repentance. We see this also in the previous chapter, verse 20 of 1 Kings, which we didn't read. God Ahab was facing invasion by King Ben-Hadad. And God redeemed him twice and sent a prophet to Ahab, even though Ahab didn't ask. 
Remember, they had different prophets in the court of the king. They had prophets of Baal. But when the king was invading, God sent his prophet to Ahab and says, I am going to redeem you. I'm going to save you from this king, from this invader, so that you will know that I am the Lord. And then the second time it happens, God still sends the prophet. I will redeem you so that you will know that I am the Lord. But Ahab doesn't turn to God. This is the mercy of God in action. God being long-suffering towards us, not wanting that anyone should perish. And even after David had committed adultery, David was far from God. And the Bible tells us that the prophet Nathan comes to God only after the baby was born. Now, when I think about it, it takes nine months, at least until the baby is born. Nothing in that time. The Bible doesn't tell us why. But I believe God was giving David time to repent of his sin. God wanted David, like David, you're, you know, David was the author of many Psalms, which are in our scripture today. David was a man who knew the Lord like few did. And yet, because of his sin, he was blinded. Those were nine months where David didn't turn to the Lord and confess his sin. He was probably wrapped up with self-justification, trying to excuse it, like we sometimes do, often do. That's what sin does to us. It blinds us. And God is, in spite of all of this, long-suffering towards us. Even when our fellowship with him is broken, the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love and that while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us so that we may be awakened to new life. This is the mercy of God which is demonstrated to us time and time again. This mercy was demonstrated to Ahab who was one of the most evil kings. The Bible says he was the vilest. But mercy was also demonstrated to David who was a man who should have known better, who knew God, who knew that this thing was against God's laws, and yet he sinned against the Lord. God's judgment came, but his judgment was tampered with mercy. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 12, after the prophet confronted David, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David showed contempt for the Lord. And the prophet tells him before these verses that the Lord says, tells David, I gave you everything. I gave you many wives. I gave you the kingdom. And if you wanted more, I would have given you more. And yet you had to sin against me in this way. And the same thing we see for Ahab. When Ahab heard the words of the prophet Elijah, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Meekly means humbly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. But I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Throughout scripture... We see over and over again that pride is something that God will not tolerate. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, he lifts us up. And we see the same thing here. In the minute David humbles himself and confesses to the Lord, the Bible says, the Lord has taken away your sin. It is immediate. And for Ahab, he humbled himself. And God said, I would delay this punishment. I would bring it in the time of his son. The judgment was still there. The consequences of sin were still there. But God brought in mercy on them. 
And we read in Psalm 51, which was our responsive reading this morning. This psalm was written by David after he had been confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba. And in verses 16 and 17, it says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. No matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how far we think we're falling, we always have a door open to us, to the throne. The Bible says if we would come humbly, if we would humble ourselves before God, not try to make excuses, not try to offer God sacrifices, not try to say, okay, I'm going to do these good things. I'm going to be extra committed now in order to make up for the evil I've done. Because our good is never good enough. We cannot offer any sacrifice that God wants. What he wants from us is a humble heart. It's a contrite spirit, a broken spirit before God. And when we humble ourselves before him, his mercy overflows. The Bible tells us that his steadfast love and his mercies never cease. And every morning they are renewed for us. It's sometimes hard for us humans to wrap our heads around this because we all know like David, like, um, not David, Peter was asking Jesus, what should I do if my brother sins against me seven times? He's already counting. And it's the same for us. You know, we go like, this is the third time this person is doing these things. Like, uh-uh, I'm drawing a line. You know, it's like, no way, sorry. And so it's hard for us to comprehend this deep mercy of God, which is fresh every morning. But the Bible tells us that that's what it is. We serve a merciful God. And the last thing I see in this passage as well, it's not the only things about God's nature, but there are the three main things that I draw from it, is that we have a God who is forgiving. We have a God of forgiveness who promises us in 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We see it in the tale of two kings as we have read. The minute David confessed, Nathan told him, the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has taken away your sin. And we read all of the other scriptures in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us as far as the east is from the west, so far away God removes our sin from us and remembers them no more. Now, it doesn't mean that God gets amnesia because sometimes this is how it's interpreted, right? Forgive and forget. Uh, we, we don't forget the things that the wrongs that have been done to us or our own wrongs. But it means that God doesn't count them against us anymore. It means that God doesn't hold it against us. It's immediate. Your sin, God has removed your sin from you. Sometimes we use the excuse when we you know, are hurt. We say, okay, I'll forgive them, but I'll have nothing to do with them anymore. Right? It's like just distance and we're done. But we see that that's not how God works. That's not how God deals with our sin. And we see it in the story of David that after Nathan had confronted David, David had a son. And this son was Solomon with Bathsheba. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. This is after the first son died from the adultery. He comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means loved of the Lord. This was the son which was born of, you know, the two people who had been in adultery. And, you know, if we were us in human standards, we might be like, you know, hey, uh, we treat them with a long arm. But the Lord tell, Bible tells us that 
David was forgiven. The consequences of his sin were still there. But God remained in fellowship with him after David confessed. After David turned around and came to God, the door was still open. And so even the son, the next son that David had with Bathsheba, God loved him. And loved him so dearly that he sent the prophet to name him. And later we see also God blessing Solomon with wisdom. The same thing we see also, or not the same, similar in 1 Kings 21 under King Ahab. So then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. But I will bring it in his house in the day of his son. In the days of his son. Ahab could be one who we would say deserved it, right? Like he had been evil. And it was not just, you know, the murder of Naboth and the vineyard. We know that all through his reign, they had killed the prophets of the Lord. You know, the Bible underscores that fact, even in this chapter, that Ahab was one of the most evil kings. And yet when he humbled himself, the Lord showed him mercy. And these two archetypes, David and Ahab, are things that we can learn in our own lives or apply in our own lives in our work of forgiveness. Sometimes we say, this person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And maybe you are right. Ahab did not deserve the grace that God showed him for all the things he had done. He was a very evil king. Naboth had been killed and Ahab had done many other things that didn't please the Lord. And God showing him this mercy. I can, you can imagine the other prophets who they, he and his wife had killed going like, where is the justice God? This man persecuted us, killed us all. And the rest who were in Israel had to go into hiding. And now you show him grace because what? He put on sackcloth? That's our human nature. But God is a merciful God. The Bible tells us that a humble heart he will not despise. The second archetype is that of David. Where we say sometimes this person should have known better. Like what they have done hurts me. They, sh they should know better. It's not like they were ignorant of it. And sometimes we run into that as a church. A church of many cultural backgrounds and church backgrounds and ethnicities. Sometimes we step on each other's toes without knowing. And so it's easy to go like this person, because in my culture it's so obvious, like someone cannot do this. It's easy to go and say, there's no way they didn't know what they were doing. They did that thing explicitly to hurt me or they said that to cut me deep. It might be true. It might not be. Often at IBC, they have found that it's something, off, more often than not, it's not the case. It's just, you know, lack of awareness. And even in the cases where it is, David could have known better, and yet God forgave him. He was a man after God's own heart, who understood God and walked with him closer than most. And yet he stumbled in a major way. God forgave him. So we sang in the song, our God is holy. So what now? We've seen that God is a God of judgment. He's a God of mercy. And he's a God of forgiveness. Judgment, mercy, and forgiveness. God tells us, be holy as I am holy. So I think it's an, on us now as followers of God, of Christ, to implement these characters of God in our lives. Now, we can't do it on our own strength. There's no way. But we can rely on the Spirit of God and we can put ourselves in a place before God 
that allows him to transform us. And that's what the spiritual disciplines are for. Studying the scriptures, praying regularly. All the different things we do, fasting, giving. They're meant to put our hearts in a place where God can transform us. Being merciful to others. And so we can put these things in our lives in practical ways by confronting sin in ourselves and in others around us. But doing it with gentleness and humility. Because the Bible tells us, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. You know, we, there's the saying, let's say, in Christian circles, like, oh, don't judge me, right, like for what I've done. But actually, we are called upon to confront sin in our lives and in others as Christians. When we see someone, and the Bible tells us here that we should restore the person gently. The goal is always restoration. And so we must always watch our motives, watch ourselves carefully before we go to speak to someone. Because Jesus also tells the story of having the plank in our own eye, the tree in our own eye, not trying to remove dust in someone else's. But we should not use that as an excuse to not confront sin in ourselves. What is it that God is con confronting you about? In your life, what is it that you see someone doing and you're turning a blind eye and God is telling you to give that person a word of encouragement, to restore that person? Those are things we can do. We can show mercy just as God shows mercy by being patient with other people's quirks, by doing good to those who hurt us, by giving people another chance. You see that God, after there was repentance, he gave the people another chance. He gave David another chance. And the next son born to him got love. And Ahab, he delayed his punishment. These are things that we can put into practice around us every day. You know, sometimes, like, oh, this person is not my person at all. We don't get along. But that's where the Bible calls us to be forbearing with one another, to carry one another's burdens. We can do good to those who hurt us. The Bible says the Lord allows the rain to fall on both the land of the wicked and the, and the good. And the sun shines as well on both the evil and the good. That is the mercy of God which goes out to all of us. Undeserved mercy and his grace. And we can be forgiving the way God is forgiving. By choosing not to hold people's sins against them. It's not that we get amnesia, but it's that we choose not to bring that up. Make a commitment to say, I will not use this thing to hinder my relationship with you. I will try to build and, and get past this and walk forward to a restoration of fellowship. Now, sometimes, you know, depending on the circumstances, you know, there is, there are healthy boundaries, you know, especially if you know, okay, this thing pulls you into sin as well, or it's a, it's a trap, it's an, it snares you. But more often than not, we just use excuses to keep people at bay because we have been hurt and we don't want to be hurt again. I understand. But that's not the way the Lord does it. We see God forgiving completely. The Bible tells us in Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, if you hold something, if you bring your gift um, to the altar and someone is holding something against you, you should leave your gift and go make peace with them. The Bible also tells us in Matthew 5, uh, that if we have something against someone, we should go to them and try to seek out forgiveness. In both cases, it's not that the person came first, 
And that's a high bar, right? Sometimes, especially when we feel wrong, we don't want to be the one to make the first step. They are the ones who should do it. But God made the first step, both for David and Ahab. He sent his prophet. We always read the word of the Lord came to the prophet to go to the king, calling them to restoration and repentance. If you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, maybe you have nothing against them, the Bible says leave that gift, go and make peace, and then come back. And if you hold something against someone, we're also told to do the same. Judgment, mercy, and forgiveness. These three things the Bible tells us over and over that we give them, we receive them from the Lord only as much as we give them to others. And if we take the word of God at face value, that God means what he says, then that should bring some humility in us. I know for me it definitely makes me rethink the way I interact with people. Because the same measure by which we judge, the same measure by which we hand out mercy and forgiveness, the Bible tells us it's the same measure by which we will receive it. And we had a sermon on this also last year. You can check in our catalog. These things we also pray in, us, in, in, our, in the Lord's Prayer. We pray all these things, but it was one of those prayers that because we recite it so often, sometimes it just becomes a recital and we're not really thinking about it. So I would like us to pray this prayer together now. And I'd like us to pray it slowly. Together. Thinking about the words, not just reciting them, but really meditating on them. And let this be a prayer before God. And we'll pray slowly, so follow my lead. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, just as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.